Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Wilander. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. The Tennis Podcast. The Tennis Podcast. Welcome to The Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. It is a tennis podcast brought to you at the end of finals weekend of the 2016 French Open. And what a finals weekend it has been. We have seen a new French Open champion crowned in the men's and the women's. Garbina Muguruza winning the women's titles. And of course, Novak Djokovic lifting the Novak Slam, the career Grand Slam, just earlier on today, beating Andy Murray in the men's final. Joining me to dissect both those matches is, of course, David Law. David, how are you doing? I'm very well, very well. Just listening to that intro does make me realise how this could have gone either way. You know, you're talking about uh, Novak Djokovic winning the career slam and winning his first French Open. It could so easily have been Serena Williams making her history. It didn't happen for her. It didn't happen for Andy Murray. It did happen for Garbina Muguruza. It was it was a great weekend for me in that regard. The fact that we just had no idea what was going to happen and any of the results would have been a big story. And we've got a couple of corkers there. Yeah, well, we'll start with corker number one. And uh, I think we'll start with the men's final because it is most recent. It finished just a few hours ago. And of course, Novak Djokovic was the champion. But there's a little bit more to it than that. It was a little bit different to their recent Grand Slam final clashes. Certainly very different to their Australian Open final encounter. In that, For me, David, that was one of the biggest and most dramatic shifts in momentum in a tennis match that I have ever witnessed between sets one and two. Would you agree? Yeah, I would say it was right up there. And I still can't quite put my finger on when and where it's shifted because I feel like I'd have to watch it back again. But I mean, in that first set, Murray took it to him. Big time. He did exactly what he did in the final in Rome. He was the boss. Apart from that 
opening game when he got broken. And, and I must admit, when Djokovic won that first game to love, I thought, here we go. This is going to be one of Djokovic's 6-1 sets that he's been putting on the top players in the world we all, all year did, long. We all David. My dad stood up and said, oh, I'm going to go put the barbecue on now then. Oh, great. I thought you should have invited me round. Didn't get a call there, did I? Anyway, I did, uh, though, when that happened, when he got broken to love, wonder how Murray would respond and all fortnight long, it seemed to me, since those couple of five-set matches, he his mentality, his psychological approach has been better. And I think in other matches, and certainly in the Australian Open final, it went away very quickly from him, that first set. And he was, he was having to fight such a rearguard action. This time, he grabbed himself, got the first set on the board. And frankly, Djokovic really did look a little bit pale, frankly, out there. He looked... It reminded me of the first set of the Australian Open final of about three years ago when he went to set down to Murray and looked stressed. I remember watching that from the photographer's pit courtside in the Rod Laver Arena and you could see the strain on Novak Djokovic's face. Suddenly when he won the second set in that match, you saw the sheen of freshness come over him and I, I felt the same thing happened here. Early in that second set, he relaxed. The shoulders stopped looking tight and and he was hitting his shots with the sort of precision and and relentlessness that that we've come to know and it it was a dramatic shift wasn't it it was a couple of things i want to pick up on on what you've just said there first of all in terms of you know what caused the momentum shift a lot of people suggesting that at least a contributing factor was that overrule from the umpire damien de Moussoir, at the end of the first set yes andy Murray did go on to hold serve and win that first set but what happened there there was the umpire the, the umpire overruled uh, a serve that was called out from Andy, Andy Murray it the serve was in there was no dispute about that but Damien Dumusoa gave the point to Andy Murray deeming that Novak Djokovic's return which was sprayed long was hit before the call of out came now I think most people seem to think that that was generally the right call but the significant thing about it was how much it galvanized the crowd in support of Novak Djokovic and I want to read you a few quotes that have come from Novak Djokovic from his post-match press conference about how much the crowd helped him today how much he feels the crowd helped him he said he felt like everybody at Roland Garros was willing him to finally lift the trophy he felt like he said I felt like this year when I arrived that it's a really different year from any other the relationship and connection I had with fans and with all the people that are contributing to the event that I see on a daily basis it was just different obviously as any other year I was hoping that this is the year I felt that kind of support and love from people around that allowed me to be sitting here with the trophy now that kind of support was very well present in the stadium today he is I mean he is stressing that that was an incredibly significant factor for him today and it was something that was really sparked or stoked by that umpiring decision at the end of the first set wasn't it well the Roland Garros crowd likes nothing more than to be outraged on somebody's behalf and also to boo. And you, boy, you could probably extend that statement to France in general, David. Well, boy, did they do both. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was all against the umpire's decision. It was the, there was that feeling within the stadium that Novak Djokovic had been wronged, and I think he enjoyed that. I don't think they actually cared whether or not he had been wronged. I think you're absolutely right. I think they just saw an opportunity to feel outraged and jumped upon it yeah and I, I think there's a couple of things that pl play here from a Novak Djokovic perspective one is 
I think that that is probably the first time in any of the Grand Slam titles that he's actually won where he's had the majority of a crowd behind him. I, I, I'm, I'm racking my brains trying to think of another one that he's won where the crowd weren't cheering more for his opponent. Obviously, Novak has a, a huge groundswell of of loyal support of his own. But if you're talking about the neutrals, he's usually been the favourite and he's usually been the player that hasn't been backed by the crowd. So I think that that was a, an immense feeling of joy for him when he was out there to, to feel this for the first time because, you know, we know that, that it has bothered him over the years. And frankly, who wouldn't it bother when the crowd are cheering for your opponents more often than not, certainly when he's played against Federer in some of those finals in which it has just gone over the top for me. And at the same time, I don't feel as though he's ever felt I should admit it. Now, whether he should or not is another matter. You know, some people might, some people might not. I think he's always thought, I'm not going to, I'm probably a bit too proud. I'm not going to tell everybody that it bothers me. I'm just going to crack on and win these matches anyway. We know, though, and I think you saw there, that it was a huge lift to him. And, and, uh, and he, he was a different man in sets two, three and four. Yeah, he absolutely was. And, and so was Andy Murray, David, wasn't he? I mean, how much of the change in demeanour, the change in level of play, how much was that down to Novak Djokovic? How much was it down to the mental baggage that Andy Murray takes onto the court playing Novak Djokovic? And how much was it down to the extra several hours of he, of tennis that he had played in this tournament in comparison to his opponent? How much was it down to Radek Stepanek and Matthias Borg? On paper, an extra five hours on the court than your opponent over the course of a couple of weeks should come into play. I, I'm not convinced it did. Maybe, maybe it did. I, I, I'm not inside Andy Murray's body to know how he how he was feeling physically out there. Equally, you look at that mental baggage that you reference. I mean, finally he'd got the first set on the board. That was something we were all waiting for, and and that's what made it a match initially. But the other huge statistic to consider here is that in eleven matches of them sharing the first two sets, Djokovic had won ten of the previous 11. It was only that final in Canada last year that Andy Murray actually ended up winning from one set all. So there was baggage there as well. But I think ultimately for me, the difference was Djokovic. I don't feel that Andy Murray started playing badly. I don't feel in the entire four sets that he he had a huge dip. He, He played well. And yet he was... We saw Novak Djokovic's greatness in those last three sets he is able to handle the best tennis of the other three best tennis players in the world better than anybody can and and I think it is mind-blowing that he's able to do it remember what Federer put on Murray last year at the uh, the Wimbledon semi-finals he couldn't do it to Djokovic Djokovic had an answer well he's got an answer to everything hasn't he and everyone I mean it's it's impossible. I've said this before on the tennis podcast to to disentangle the mental and the, the the physical and technical from the sport. If if you completely discounted the the mental aspects of the sport, mental strength, mental frailty from from the makeup of a player's game, then the rankings would look completely different. I think Novak Djokovic would probably still be at the top um, for for that matter, but the the rankings in general would look completely 
different. So, yes, Andy Murray played incredibly well in the first set and had he kept that level up, he probably would have at least hung with Djokovic better. I don't know whether he would have gone on to win because Djokovic improved his level a lot, but I think he would have at least hung with him and probably taken it to five. And, yes, his level did dip a bit. But that's, you you you, you know, you, you can't place that as the only narrative on the match. You know, people's levels dip mentally for a million other reasons. And then that brings us on to, you know, the the deeply linked mental and physical things that, that Simon Briggs and I were talking about a couple of podcasts ago. You just can't disentangle the two. So it's too simplistic to just say, oh, well, Murray's level really dipped and he started to, to lack belief and that was when Djokovic pounced. I don't think that's the case. I mean, look, I think there were signs that Murray was starting to doubt it. You know, a couple of, there were a couple of points where it was really symptomatic for me of, of the classic thing of feeling like you just have to do too much with the ball. There were a couple of shots where he had easy putaways at the net and he didn't go for the easy putaway. He went for a dinked shot to just to make sure there was absolutely no chance that Djokovic could get there because he was thinking, my goodness me, it has to be so good for him not to get it back. And of course, he ended up making the error because he was thinking that way. This is what the best players in the world do to you. They make you feel like you've just got to do so much. And I think possibly after that first set, Murray was thinking, oh my goodness, can I possibly keep this up? But look, Djokovic the completely worthy winner. He says this is the most triumphant, the most joyous moment of his career so far. You can understand why. I mean, where this places him in sort of the, the ranks of achievements in tennis now is is quite something. He's He's right up there. Yes, he now joins Federer and Nadal, his contemporaries, as well as uh, as well as Labour and the rest, with, with having the career Grand Slam. But Federer and Nadal have never, never held all four at the same time. This is a new achievement just for him. And it is incredible, isn't it? It is incredible. And, you know, aside from everything he's done himself, I, I think of all the slams that he's won, this is the one where he will probably look to his support team with the most thanks. I feel that Boris Becker, whether it's Becker or whether it's Marion Vida, I think those two guys have have helped him mentally get over this this block of winning the French Open because I think there were doubts there and he was he was looking for excuses at times over the last two weeks. He when he wasn't playing well against Batista Gut, we talked about that. When he lost the first set today, it would have been so easy for him to just have the flashbacks to last year and and see it going wrong again. And I think he, he was looking up there and, and connecting and, and remembering probably what they've told him and and it, it was working for him he he was he was able to deal with the moment uh today and all power to him all power to him he's now on for the uh for the 2016 golden slam david it is such a real possibility isn't it i mean that is just inc- incredible i know it's 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 three major tournaments away but but as I said in an earlier podcast, I thought this would be the biggest 
roadblock in the way of him doing the, the Golden Slam, I now see it as, you know, possibly even odds on that he might do that. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but I now see it as a really definite possibility. Well, when you, consider, when you consider the way he's scheduling himself, and we, we know, we're pretty confident that he will not play in that Davis Cup tie against Great Britain, and we're pretty confident that Andy Murray will, unless he has a change of heart. He said he will. Uh, we've got Roger Federer, who's been out injured for the last few months he he's not really played much this year at all we've got Nadal injured goodness knows how long he's out for he's probably not going to play Wimbledon so suddenly the 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 the, the obstacles in the way of Djokovic are fewer than they even have been in recent years and and that's when they've had these great players up against him Murray is uh, there's a there's a good chance you know that that it could be Djokovic against Murray in all four Grand Slam finals this year that that, that is not beyond the realms um but yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Djokovic is the overwhelming favourite in every event he plays. Simple as that. A little word for a little word for Andy Murray, David, because you've got to spare a thought for him, hasn't he? I mean, his career has perfectly spanned the the peaks of three players who have all completed the calendar Grand Slam. I mean, the fact that there are three players in the same era that have completed... Sorry, not calendar Grand Slam, the career Grand Slam. The fact that there are three players in the same era that have completed the career Grand Slam is incredible. The fact that Andy Murray... (laughs) Mandy Murray's career sits perfectly within that era is pretty uh, gutting for him, isn't it? I mean, he is an extraordinary tennis player and it must be said that he is a more extraordinary tennis player than he would be if the opposition weren't so strong. And he knows that as well as as anyone. And that is a very important point to make. But, you know, timing is everything. I'll, I'll hark back to my Leighton Hewitt point. You know, there's no way he would be winning a Wimbledon in the US t- Open title in this era. era. But timing is everything. And <laughs> is Novak Djokovic, David, they're exactly the same age. You know, it's not like Murray can think, oh, I just have to hang on until Djokovic fades away. Uh, will Djokovic just simply always be in his way? He's lost him in five Grand Slam finals now. Uh, he, he may well be, given the, the ages they're at. I, I still think Murray will dig in again and keep producing and keep getting better. I think the one thing I would disagree potentially with you on there is is that he would automatically, if these guys were out of the way, have had the same career himself in terms of producing this level of tennis to win this number of Grand Slams maybe that some of the others have got. I didn't say the same. No, but but I think my point is that I think that the other players have elevated Andy Murray's level. He likes to have challenges. He gets, I think he gets bored, frankly. Uh, I don't think he has it in his makeup necessarily to just reel off Grand Slam after Grand Slam quite the way that Djokovic has. Um, it... <laughs> It's it's one of those impossibles to answer, really, isn't it? But I don't think Murray will be too gutted overall to have shared this era with these three guys. He's got some wins against them. He's got some Grand Slam titles. He's the greatest British athlete maybe ever. And there's a lot to be said for that. But will Djokovic always be in his way? Um, yeah, well, he will. Whether Whether Murray occasionally will be able to shunt him out of the way is another matter. I think on grass, I, I'd, I'd very much like to see a match now. I'd love to see a Wimbledon final between these two. I think that that could be really interesting because I think that on that surface, 
is Murray's best chance? Well, there's every every chance. I mean, is anybody out there going to bet against it being a Murray Djokovic Wimbledon final? I'm not sure I would at this stage. I think, as you said, there's every chance they will meet in all of the finals this year. But, you know, as I love to say on the tennis podcast, things do happen. Things can happen. Things eventually will happen is that vague enough for you things happen that's very vague have you can we just do our poll because i know you love your polls catherine hang uh, on i'm in charge on this tennis... week, david i'm in charge now come on and that means all right no well polling. you ask it then the poll is how many will you go on to win less than 17 17 18 to 20 or more than 20 the 17 of course being crucial because that is the number that roger federer is currently on whether or not you think he will add to that number is a different poll for a different day or just for never if you uh, if you share my views on polling, uh, but uh, the, the the results aren't yet in, David. But uh... well, they're, they're, but we can give a latest, can't we? Four hundred and thirty eight votes in in the last uh, few minutes, and uh, I probably should have put a fourteen or less in as well because that's the level that Nadal's at at the moment, and Djokovic is on twelve. I just kind of assumed that he will reach that. To be honest, now I mean it it, it seems inconceivable that he won't. Um, 8% have said he'll get exactly 17, 31% less than 17. The most that people reckon he'll get is 18 to 20. 43% reckon he'll get 18 to 20 grand slams and 18% think he'll get more than 20. I mean, I I, I could see him getting up to 17. I really could and and, and probably beating it. I don't think I, I I don't think that's remotely controversial. I see him probably getting to 17 I, I i would be surprised if he went around the 20 mark i mean I... many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. 
Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. That would be, my mind would be blown. You know, there are only four of these a year. And, you know, the fact is, as amazing and as brilliant as he is, he's not going to win all, all, he's not, well, (laughs) he's not going to win two calendar year Grand Slams, I don't think. Do do you know, in, in 2010, in Toronto, a tournament I attended, I, I managed to, sorry, terrible name drop come in here. I managed to get an interview with Roger Federer and he was on 16 Grand Slam titles at the time. I think this is his 2010. And I said to him, we always seem to, whenever we speak to you these days, ask you when you're going to finish. You know, we're, we're always sort of work, trying to work out how long you'll play for. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. I am curious as, as to your, your remaining ambitions in the sport. If, you, if I said to you you could play another five years and win three more Grand Slams, would, yeah. would you take that? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I would want to win more. Um, I, I I just believe, obviously, having won you know three Grand Slams uh, per season, I think two or three times. I don't even remember, but or and a, and a few times also two per year is something that's very doable for me. And you know, obviously, at times I was one set away or two sets away from winning the calendar Grand Slam so obviously I feel I have a great potential on, on you know on Grand Slam play but then again Grand Slams are not everything unfortunately they have become sort of everything but to me they're not that's why I'm playing here in Toronto and Cincinnati and those are also very important tournaments to me and some like to see it as a lead up tournament and I, I really don't like the, hear, the the taste of that, you know, that people think, oh, you know, who cares about these tournaments? All I know is I'm giving 100% for each and every tournament I play because I don't play a ton of tournaments, you know. I only play about 16 to 20 tournaments per per year, so I'm not overplaying. And actually that uh, keeps the fire burning. The, the motivation is huge, you know, for, for the next few years. And obviously if I can win Grand Slams, that's fantastic, you know, but they are not the only motivation for the next few years. So I took that as, oh, he, he, he wants and thinks he can win 20 then because three more would have been 19 in five years and he thought he, he could win more. As it turns out, he's won one more. He's won one Wimbledon in 2012. And, of course, he would have been, what, 30, just turning 30 at the time? And that I, I'm not saying you come up against a Novak Djokovic every five minutes or a Nadal at the level he was and the spurt that Murray had, but... I think it does show you when you get into your 30s, certainly for the for the men, how much more difficult it is to win these things. It'll be interesting to see whether Djokovic can can defy that because he's going to turn 30 next year. He he has a, this fantastic sort of lithe physique, which I think will stand the test of time. But it will be interesting to see whether the likes of Alexander Zverev and Kyrgios can start to close that gap and eventually overhaul him. That, I mean, that's really interesting. Um, as much as I would love to have been sniffy about your name dropping, David, I did find that incredibly interesting. And uh, yeah, it obviously, you know, how he projected himself into the future you know, is is obviously not how things exactly panned out. Maybe he he didn't anticipate how difficult it would be being in his 30s. Well, I mean, he's played wonderful tennis, hasn't he? I think he's probably surprised at the level Djokovic has found. I think that if you think back to 2010, he was number three in the world, Djokovic, and that was his position. He was comfortably behind Nadal and Federer. That is why I respect what he's done so much, because... 
he used to rest on his laurels and and Todd Martin who was working with him at that time said that he said his favorite thing to do is to rest on his laurels he's got this unbelievable ability to cover the court and play these great shots and he's not pushing himself to the to the next level well in the last five years he has uh, he, he's pushed himself self as hard as anybody as hard as anybody ever could and Djokovic is maximizing his potential one more then how's how many is he going to win I think he'll win 18 and Federer will stay on 17 Ooh. I I think so. I think so now. I mean, I, I don't want to hear the words he take breath away. Not no. No, none well, of that. look, he's already done that for me. He he's done it in terms of the I didn't think necessarily well I did. I, but I think it was mind-boggling what what Federer has done over the last 2 years to get himself back in contention from where he was after that Rob Rado defeat in 2013 was it at the US Open when he he lost in the 4th round and he just looked he looked washed up and people were saying he's done and that's I think when I when I said it just as I mean frankly it was as much out of hope as anything I I just hoped that this guy could finish on a high I feel as though He's done that since then. He's got to Wimbledon finals. He's produced majestic, magical tennis. He's now had a back injury. He's had a knee injury. How many more times can you keep coming back and, and doing it again? I think we'll see good tennis again from him, but no, I, I don't think he won another slam, I'm afraid. Djokovic, 18, then Federer, 17. Interesting. Interesting, David. I, I mean, I'm I'm in charge this week, so I don't have to put my neck on the line. Well, let's move on to the women's final. What do you think, Catherine? I don't know. I don't know what I think. I think he'll. I think he'll. I think he'll get to seventeen. I think he'll get to seventeen. Is what I think. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? Can, you know, you can. I, you can live off, live off that. <laughs> I think he'll be just fine. I think I'm not going to be losing any sleep about the fortunes of Novak Djokovic over the next few few years. Let's put it that way. Hundred million dollars in the bank. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's. Yeah. I think he's I think his parents are proud of him. Uh the women's final, speaking of people whose parents will be proud of them, Garbinia Muguruza is a Grand Slam champion and a very welcome one at that. Uh it was incredible for me, David, seeing her it was almost actually a bit disarming seeing her in her moments of victory and in her acceptance speech on, on the court with the trophy. She was so poised and so calm it had, it was like she was going through the motions and had been doing that for years it was you know in some ways it was incredibly impressive and i was looking at her thinking wow it was like she came out of the womb a grand slam champion how on earth can she be dealing with it like this but it, on the other hand i found it almost a bit eerie but then you know it's what i was talking about in the last podcast she's she's sort of trained herself into the mindset of a great great champion and and everything about her demeanor was of somebody that completely expected to be standing up there with the trophy it didn't surprise her one bit that she is the champion of Roland Garros did it surprise you David it didn't have the feel of Kerber's victory when Kerber beat Serena Williams it was your your jaw was on the floor because I think I don't think she'll ever play tennis like that again, uh, and and be able to summon up th- that level of inspiration. For Muguruza, you're quite right. She took it in her stride. She stepped out on that court, thinking, "Well, I can go toe to toe with Serena Williams. That's absolutely fine." And that's what she did. She looked the more calm 
of the two players throughout the match. She has an, uh, one of the commentators on Eurosport, Chris Bradnam, used this word to describe the way she moves around the court in between points, regal. And she does that. She has this poised, shoulders back, sort of almost slow motion, deliberate process that she goes through between each point. And it's it's calming for her, I, I think. And um, it'll be it, the interesting thing will be how she backs this up. Uh, obviously, you give her let's let her enjoy this one first. But she's had a few great moments and big wins in the past and then has had a few rocky months and Serena Williams really over the last three or four years just hasn't had that so can she sustain this well Mats Verlander who we so often quote on the tennis podcast he, he he's going to be quoted again here because during the the commentary today he said I, I think Muguruza in, in a few years time is going to be on five or six slams which brings me neatly, David, onto my next question. Is she the next new world number one? Yeah, I think she is. I think she is. She is the player who has the the firepower, the lack of weaknesses. Uh, I don't really see any real soft spot there for in, in Muguruza's game. I think I'll, we'll see how much she wants it, I think. But to me, there's a player that knows what she's capable of and wants to achieve it. In a similar way to Djokovic in that regard, I think Muguruza will will plough on here. And I, I hope for Serena's sake that she's able to win enough to, to, to break these records before Muguruza gets a, a hold on this sport, because I, I think she may well be able to achieve that because she she has no no weakness on the surfaces either Muguruza she can she's reached the Wimbledon final she's won the French Open she has a perfect game for hard court there's not really too much to to go wrong out there well that's the thing isn't it for Serena this is this is a sign with all due respect to her and and she's obviously been the most incredible athlete well into her mid-30s but Naturally, time is ticking and, and, you know, it's one thing Angelique Kerber beating her to a Grand Slam title. You know, Angelique Kerber, as great as she is, and she's, you know, by no means a, a grand old dame of tennis, but she's not the, the the next big thing, is she? She's not somebody that's threatening to steal Serena's mantle at the top and be the next, you know, dominant world number one. I don't think she's ever been talked about in those terms. Muguruza is, you know, Muguruza is somebody that can steal it all the way from her. And, you know, so is Madison Keyes, although, you know, she's in, in comparison to how Muguruza's push, pushed on, you know, Keyes has stalled a little bit. Belinda Bencic is as well. It's disappointing to see her out with injury at the moment. This, for me, is more alarming for Serena. I think I, I as as well as many others, I took it for granted that Serena would get Steffi's record, that she would she would get past Steffi's record. And this was the first time, her losing yesterday was the first time that I thought, hang on a second, there's a possibility that she won't. I still think she will, but I now see it as a possibility, at least, that she won't. And that means probably that Serena is as well. It's now starting to cross her mind. Hang on a minute. I might not get there. And maybe that was crossing her mind on Saturday as well. Maybe that was part of the problem. Possibly. Uh, I, I, I share your view that there is now a small question mark because of the level that Muguruza has found here. And yeah, I mean, the one or two frailties that we're seeing in Serena Williams's game, because these are finals that we expected her to win, both of the last two. And of course, the one at the US Open last year when she didn't even get there, she has been known to fret 
um, and who wouldn't? Chris Everett was saying that when you're there to be shot at, it, it's it's more difficult. Um, I still think she'll do it. I think she's a champion. She she still has an incredibly high level of tennis. She doesn't look as though she's physically troubled, particularly with the age that she's at. We've got two Grand Slams coming up back-to-back in the next few months, both on surfaces that she, she loves. So I, I still think she, there's there's probably just as much likelihood as of her doing it this year uh, and breaking the record as there is of her not doing it at all. She, she's quite capable of winning the next two back-to-back. I think so. Well, do you want me to... To to make an unsolicited, bold prediction, David, in the spirit of yeah. the tennis podcast, I think she's going to win Wimbledon. I think she'll, thus equaling Steffi's record, I think she will win the US Open, breaking Steffi's record, and then I think she'll retire with Venus. There you go. How's that? Catherine, I'm really proud of you. <laughs> I've come a long way, haven't I? I I'm so impressed. Although also, so I've, sort of, I've sort of gone backwards because what this is, is a bold Serena Williams-related prediction, which is what I vowed never to do again. So, no, But that really is bold. I, that, that is good. I'm not even going to say anything else. You can have that one. It's good, isn't it? It's good. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe they'll win doubles gold at the Olympics and then... I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to complicate things. I've been bold. There it is. It's good. Love it. You can disagree? No. Okay. I'm, I don't. I, I'm just totally bowled over. I can't believe that you, of all people, have come up with a prediction like that. I'm so proud. Right then. All that remains, David, I think, is for a little reflection on the tournament as a whole. And I know it's tempting to um, to to get a bit negative. I mean, we can't hide from the fact that it has been a difficult tournament, hasn't it? I think everybody's lasting feeling is, goodness me, bring on that roof. It can't come soon enough. And I'm sure that all the tournament organisers, A, are just pretty glad it's over, frankly, and B, wishing they'd started construction on that roof a few years earlier. But there's nothing they can do about that now. The roof is coming. It will be there um, in a matter of years, I think 2019. And aside from that, you know, Yes, it's been a trying tournament, I think, for everybody. But what stories, you know, what people will remember is Muguruza's first slam. And if she goes on to be the great champion that we think she'll be, you know, it will all have started here at 2016 Roland Garros. And 2016 Roland Garros will always be the year, the tournament, when Novak Djokovic, who also could go on to be the greatest of all time, David Law predicts will go on to be the greatest of all time, uh, in Grand Slam terms anyway, uh, it will be where he won his career Grand Slam. And that is what it will be remembered for at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, we're a grumpy lot in the tennis world at times. and we, we, we tend to have a few days of rain or things don't go so well or there's a bad decision made. And we, we can get a bit over the top, I think. And I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of it as well. And I do Speak tend to... for yourself, David. I mean, if you'd stepped in three separate puddles on your, on your way into work one morning, you would be grumpy too. Well, the case in point, Catherine Whitaker, grumpy Catherine Whitaker speaks for, for all the, the people there, as you can see. But the, the fact is, you have a good final weekend like we've just had. And you're right, that is what you end up remembering it for. And I'm also just hopefully educated a little bit by the memory of the Australian Open, I think a couple of years ago, when we had those four consecutive days of 40 degrees plus, when everybody was saying something's got to be done about this and, you know, they've got to start playing the matches later on in the day and all this sort of stuff. And one of my colleagues, more experienced colleagues, just said, 
yeah, but how often has this ever happened before? You know, if you go over the decades, this hasn't happened before, really. And sure enough, the last two years at the Australian Open, there's been no heat issues whatsoever. So probably next year, there'll be a bit of rain, but it probably won't be too bad. Yes, they need a roof. That much is obvious. It's staring everybody in the face. The US Open is about to unveil its own roof in September, which is long overdue as well. So, yes, they all need to have them so that the show can go on. That will happen. I think, yes, they've made mistakes at times this this fortnight, but I think we should cut them a bit of slack, honestly. Oh, I I entirely agree. I mean, my, my hearts go out to them, really. I, I, I can see what a... What a tough fortnight it's been for them, and I'm sure the celebrations at the staff party tonight uh, will be will be pretty heartfelt and uh, yeah, much needed. Um, but yeah, I think slack has to be cut. We are, you know, we do all lose sight of the fact that basically we're all travelling around the world talking about tennis for a living, and uh, yeah, stepping in puddles as annoying as it might be at the time in the grander scheme of things is is a is a pretty much in the category of first world problems isn't it what, what i mean however if anybody puts a puddle in front of me at any grand slam tournament there's going to be hell to pay well it's not going to be a problem david because there's going to be no puddles at all during the british grass court season never never a raindrop in sight at the queen's club that's in a couple of weeks time next week it's the Aegon open in nottingham i'll be presenting that uh, live coverage of that for eurosport so do tune into that and of course the following week it's the Aegon championships from the Queen's Club, and we're all very much looking forward to a glorious sunny week there, aren't we, David? We are, and in fact, I've got a press release open here from the Aegon Open in Nottingham, which headlines, Johanna Conta set to shine as sun comes out for Aegon Open Nottingham. Talk about being smug about the weather, but why wouldn't you if you're going to get a few good days of weather? That's what they're going to get in Nottingham. Uh, It's going to be... Good fun to see that because they've got a good feel. Johanna Concert will be there. She's actually playing the American uh, Victoria Duval, who's had such ill health of late. So good to see her back on the circuit. Carolina Pliskova is going to be there as well. So, you know, it, if you are interested in going and seeing the tennis in Nottingham, do it. It's a nice place to go and watch tennis. The start of the grass court season. Loads of British players are playing. Whoa, whoa, what, whoa. What? Whoa, 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 David. I'll stop you there because if you don't have the chance to see it, you can watch on Eurosport, and that's that's yeah, but just then great you, too. Record it, record it, Catherine. You know, and then Double be able to bubble. see a bit of Catherine. Okay, I see what you've done there. Well. Okay, yeah, fine. I'll let it go. Right, fine. And when we get to the Aegon Championships at the Queen's Club the week after, we, Catherine Whittaker, are going to be having daily tennis podcasts. Daily, daily. If you didn't, if you didn't have enough of this already. <laughs> <laughs> you will have done by the end of the Aegon Championships. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. I can't wait. Uh, it's going to be really, really good fun. It's going to be full on. I need to go and get some sleep because the grass court season is uh, its hectic, isn't it, David? But we just love it. We do. We love it. We love it. So uh, enjoy your week in uh, Nottingham, Catherine. Do uh, bring me a, a, a bow and arrow or whatever they dish out from Nottingham, Sherwood Forest and all that. I would love to, but I, <laughs> I feel a bit of a fraud now. So I'm not actually going to be in Nottingham. I'm going to be in Eurosport Studios in Feltham. But uh, but oh. I'm sure, you know, eBay's got bow and arrows, hasn't it? Okay, indeed. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you very much for your company, David, for your insight. It's been really interesting. It's been 2016, Roland Garros. We have been the Tennis Podcast. We've been brought to you in association with The Telegraph, and we will be back soon. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 